0: Uh, in the United States, like in many other countries, we, we're getting very, uh, basically really busy with getting bombarded with information and I think it is very important that everyone takes a, a little bit of time to reflect on, on our own life, on our role in society today. Uh, what can we do to, to make uh, our country better?
1: Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get stuff. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone! Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host Gavin Cosgrave, and I'm back here on the beautiful Santa Clara campus, just trying to stay afloat in week two of the quarter. It's a fun start to the quarter. I have four uh, great classes. Well, three great classes. Uh, Two of them are religion classes. I have the Psychology of Spirituality as well as a uh, a Bible and Sexuality class, and then I have a Conscientious Capitalism uh, business. Leadership course, which encourages us to do a lot of personal reflection and uh, other fun case studies, and then a business capstone class where I'll be doing a group project. Seems like a pretty typical business class. So, uh, yeah, that's me. Fun start of the quarter. Excited to uh, keep going with the podcast. And we have a few cool new projects as well as some great guests lined up for the quarter. Today's guest is Enrique Pumar, who is a sociology professor and the chair of that department. Dr. Pumar is kind of an expert on all things uh, Latin America and dealing with the different social problems. And he sometimes is featured on CNN and other news outlets, uh, often uh, speaking Spanish about the uh, the current news and events and uh, challenges in Latin American countries. So you might have seen recently uh, that there were a lot of protests in many Latin American countries, including Chile, and we touch on those in this conversation. Uh, Dr. Pumar also um, this. Discusses with me about the importance of sociology, kind of the discipline as a whole, why students uh, can benefit from that toolkit, Um, and then we get into uh, immigration, homelessness, um, and several other uh, kind of societal problems that sociology has a unique lens on. Uh, Dr. Pumar also has a cool upbringing story. He was uh, raised in Cuba, and we start there with uh, his path to Santa Clara. So. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy this episode and here is Enrique Pumar. You have a pretty interesting uh, background, I think. So maybe could you touch on like what was what was life like growing up and just, just a few highlights of how you got interested in the sort of topics that you study today? Sure,
0: sure. Well, I, I was born in Cuba. Um, so I was born there in in the middle of the revolution uh, and I left in my family and I left in 1970 uh, the 1960s in Cuba were very very difficult for people like like my family who disagreed with the government so uh, for that reason uh, we know that we couldn't live in the country because it was very asphyxiating mm-hmm. and we opted to to leave uh, in 1970 we went to Spain late in Spain for four years and then from Spain uh, we applied for a visa and we got a visa to come to the United States and I lived in northern New Jersey for most of my life Uh, attended Rutgers University and uh, I left New Jersey uh, to attend the University of Chicago and then I came back when I finished my degree and and then when we got married my wife and I moved to Washington D.C. and we've been there ever since Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's kind of like an overview of Uh, uh, my life but in terms of growing up uh, growing up I have to be honest with you it was not easy because uh, as I said earlier we were uh, living in communist Cuba uh, and my family disagreed with the government so uh, you know we were stigmatized and so forth by the, by the government and by uh, many popular organizations there uh, because we we didn't go along with the policies of the government so it was very difficult for us to survive very difficult for me to to survive, to, to do well in school because the situation was very, very highly politicized, mm-hmm. and um, you know, for some, when when a, when a situation is highly politicized, if you don't agree with the government, then you are sort of on the outskirts, you know, you on the on the outside, and that's not a good position to be in. So I I would say that. You know, it was a lot of fun. I had a, you know, obviously my relatives there, a lot of friends. But I cannot say that I I had a normal upbringing like people here in the United States because, here you know you have a lot of freedom to move around and travel and go abroad or stay here or do this or do that we we didn't have those rights in Cuba so mm-hmm. uh, we had to stay in and, and basically if either you had a choice you either agree with the government or you didn't and if you didn't there was a very high price to pay mm-hmm. to pay so
1: do you see any like connections between the the way Cuba was growing up and other Um, protests that we see today in different Latin American countries or globally?
0: Well, the... the, uh, So, as you know, as we know, in Latin America right now, uh, a lot of people are protesting. But the protests are different. Because in Cuba, there is no... In Cuba back then, and even today, uh, there is very little dissent allowed. So, most of the mobilization that you see in Cuba is controlled by the government. In other words, the government is the one that asks the people, okay, we need to go out and march on the street to protest mm-hmm. this. Is is sponsored and controlled by the government. Whereas in Latin America it's the opposite. It's the people by themselves, through their own will, mm-hmm. that they go to the streets and they protest an issue, or a situation that they disagree with. Mm-hmm. So so, so e- even though there are protests in both Cuba and Latin America, they are actually quite different. In, mm-hmm. in Cuba, as I said a moment ago, they are sponsored by the government, Latin America, they're more organic, and they take place outside the government Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why you see that there is a lot of repression in some places like in Chile for example where police abuse have been well documented because the government obviously do not agree with the demonstrators Mm -hmm. they would like the demonstrators to stop Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's a different dynamic.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Why should someone in the U.S. be uh, concerned or aware of, of protests happening in other countries?
0: Well, I, I think that um, uh, the United States and Amer- the American people uh, cannot have it both ways. If, 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 if the United States and the American people enjoy be, being the leader of the free world, You have to get involved, you know, because uh, when you are a leader, that basically means that you have to be concerned with other people's welfare. You have, to, you have to understand what's going on and, and try to do something about it if it's possible and that kind of thing. Um, now, if, if people uh, don't want to be the United States, they don't want the United States to be a leader of the free world, then they can sit back and be more complacent and say, well, it's not really my problem. Somebody else should take care of it. Mm-hmm. But if you are expected to be a leader and you don't lead, then you lose your authority. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but uh, because of the way the international system is organized, uh, if we don't lead, other countries are going to lead. Mm -hmm. Other countries are going to try to take advantage of the situation, to manipulate it to their advantage. Mm -hmm. You know, we we normally say in academia that international relations are anarchical. You know, there is no central government. Every country is trying to defend their own Mm -hmm. interests. So in that situation, if you don't defend... Your own interest. Someone else would take advantage of that uh, vacuum and would try to promote their own interests. Mm-hmm. So it's always better to defend your own interests rather than to uh, sort of be, be complacent and allow other, other countries to to become uh, leaders or challengers of of the United States. Mm-hmm. For that simple reason alone, yeah. I think that we need to get involved. We need to know what's going on. But of course, there are other practical reasons. You know. Uh, For example, let's take the case of Chile, you know. Chile right now is in the middle of an uproar because uh, there is a wide uh, inequality and a lack of opportunity, very few social mobility, even though the economy is doing, at the macro level, the economy is doing relatively well. Uh, Why should an average American worry about that? Well, we import a lot of fruits uh, from ch- uh, Chile. We, this time of the year, we import a lot of uh, grapes from Chile. Uh, we import wine from Chile. We import many other things. And in addition to that, if you look at the Chilean uh, country, uh, is a very uh, narrow country that stretch a, a, chunk, a good chunk of South America. It's a it's an a strategic partner of the United States. You know, uh, if we if we had a good terms with Chile, we can we can actually have access to a lot of countries in South America because of the geography and the way it plays. So so there are many many reasons mm-hmm. uh, why we should pay attention to this
1: yeah yeah totally. And I want to touch on immigration as well sure. some so you I know have done a lot of work in writing yeah. and thinking about immigration, but maybe to to start like what are are there any big misconceptions that you see a lot around immigration or big issues that you don't think people are are thinking about very much when when thinking about specifically i guess U.S. Mexico the border situation and immigration.
0: Yeah, well, let me let me start off by saying that immigration is a worldwide problem. Hmm. Okay. If it, I, w- I was just actually uh, before you came in, I was looking at at the United Nations uh, High Commission on Refugees. Uh, Seventy-one million people around the world are displaced, hmm. you know, uh, in some form or another. Okay, so this is a major major humanitarian problem. In some cases, the the Humanitarian problems are more profound than in others, like, for example, in the Mediterranean, northern Africa, obviously, in the Americas, in the triangle countries in Central America and the United States. They seem to be you know, areas where there is a great deal of displaced individuals. In Venezuela, about 4 million people have been displaced. In Venezuela alone, affecting neighboring countries, Colombia, Ecuador, and so on and so forth. So, so this is a major humanitarian problem. We need to, we need to uh, you know, if we live in this world, uh, this interconnected, globalized world, we have to be sensitive to that situation, okay? And we also have a very large immigrant population in the United States, so that's very, very important as well, you know. Uh, the undocumented population has, has actually decreased from uh, a few years ago, it reached up to 11 million, and it's now close to 10 million or so. These are estimates, no. Um, and they, there is a lot, you know, our, our society is very diverse. A lot of people who settle in this country. So that also is an, adds to, to to the complication of the problem. Mm-hmm. What are some of the misperceptions? Well there are many. Uh, one of the misperceptions is that uh, immigrants are criminals. That's not true. That's absolutely not the case. If you look at a general basically homicides in the United States since 1993 the rate of homicides in the United States have been decreasing and the United States has one of the lowest homicides in the world about five for every 100,000 people but since 1993 the homicides have been decreasing and immigration have been increasing so there is an inverse correlation mm-hmm. between immigration and crime at least in that sense so, the idea that immigrants bring crime is not just substantiated by the data. That's, that's one misperception. Another one is the question of, well, immigrants are taking jobs away from Americans. Mm-hmm. That's not true at all. It is true that immigrants are competing with Americans for low-skills service jobs. Mm-hmm. Working in McDonald's, working in fast food restaurants, uh, you know, maybe construction work, uh, moving, doing landscaping—all of these kind of things. At that level, there is a, le- a great deal of competition. But once you start looking at more sophisticated employment, um, the impact of immigration is actually beneficiary, not adversarial. You know, uh, in, in other words, immigrants create jobs. When you look at more sophisticated employment mm-hmm. uh, categories. Mm-hmm. So for example, here in the Silicon Valley, a lot of the uh, tech industries have been founded by immigrants. Mm-hmm. A lot of these startups are founded by immigrants. Mm-hmm. The immigrants are actually creating employment, mm-hmm. okay? So, so we cannot say flat out, oh, immigrants are taking jobs away from America because that's not actually the truth. The, and that actually is not true. There is some competition in some sectors of the economy, but not in others. And there are many areas in which we need immigrant labor. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, as you probably know, the many small towns uh, in the Midwest are are suffering from uh, depopulation. People are moving out to the big cities. The only way to keep those towns is if we accept immigrants and they come and they settle there and they start, you know... Uh, their own employments mm-hmm. you know so they become self-employed or they start mm-hmm. a business or something to that effect then they, then they, there will be some economic activity mm-hmm. and these towns will be uh, you know rejuvenated again. Mm-hmm. Finally mm-hmm. Uh, the, let me say the following if you look at, at the United States demographically and any industrial country by the way, our, our population is, is becoming uh, older. Mm -hmm. and people are having less and less uh, families. So uh, it's very rare to see uh, a family with five or six kids like we saw many 20 years ago. So what that means is that the the population is becoming older and the population growth is almost uh, moving very, very slow. And the main uh, contributors to population uh, growth are immigrants. So... If we want our population to grow healthy so that we can support those who are retiring at an increased number, the baby boomers are in current, we need, we need immigrants. We need to welcome immigrants so that they come and contribute to the United States. Mm-hmm.
1: And you mentioned the UN report earlier with all the, yes. what, 70 million dis- displaced Se- 71 people. 71 million. Um, and that number m- might even increase in the future with especially thinking about climate change or other ways that people get displaced right so what what role do you think like the US should play like I realize this is kind of like an ethical or philosophical question almost but like yeah what how should we think about our our role in, in a world where more and more people are displaced from their homes
0: well, I, I think that our role uh, should uh, should be uh, should should have two components. You know, one component is to try to find a solution to the problem. Um, you mentioned climate change. Um, we are moving away from a lot of the climate change agreements and conventions uh, that are being sponsored in a, a abroad mm-hmm. right now as we speak today there is a major worldwide climate conference that just was it, it just was inaugurated today in madrid mm-hmm. i don't know that we're there you know i don't know that we that we have a, a delegation there um we need to take a lead in trying to find a solution to these problems, uh, so that the, the the problems can be prevented. Mm-hmm. Most of the people who migrate today, they migrate because of climate change or because of uh, civil wars, um, repression by the country. So Syria is a very good example. It's a, it's a country that has a collapsing state and uh, you know has an ongoing conflict for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to take steps to to resolve those conflicts, so that. People can go back, feel safe, and they can go back to the country rather than migrating. Because I, I bet you that if you ask a Syrian, you know, do you have a choice? If you have a choice, would you like to go back to your country and live in peace, and you know the way you, it used to be before the civil war? or Would you like to leave? The majority of them are going to say, no. I like to go back to my country. I have my family there, my home, neighborhood. You know, I enjoy living in my my own country. So, so the United States. First and foremost, should as a leader uh, that we are of the free world, we should take advantage of our leadership, uh, of our authority, and we should take initiatives to actually prevent uh, this massive migration movement from around the world. We should do everything we can to do to assure, assure, assure that. The other thing that we should do, the second thing, is that I think that we should live up to our obligations. And uh, right now, uh, the current administration is reducing the number of refugees, for example, that are allowed legally in the United States. That's something that I don't think we should do. Uh, There are countries, like for example, Turkey, that are taking more refugees than we are. And we are much more bigger than Turkey and our economy is much bigger more healthy, more powerful so I think that we need to live up to our our expectations and at the same time we need to take initiatives to resolve what's causing immigration and and be creative about different arrangements to to resolve immigration.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely. So you're a professor of sociology here um, and uh, I think sociology isn't a field that many people, that, that first comes to mind when you think sure. of college. You know, you might sure. think of economics or political science, sure. which is sure, sure. closer to what we've talked about today. But, yeah, like why should why should someone study sociology or what could what could someone who's never studied sociology learn from someone who has?
0: So, so if you would ask that question to one of my faculty mentors when I, I was getting my PhD, uh, my faculty mentors would say, because we we have class power and status you know again this is a running joke among sociologists. there was actually a very famous uh, sociology in the 19th century who wrote about class power and status mm-hmm. so it's kind of like a running joke within the profession but seriously though why do we study sociology well um, it, it, the first thing is I think I want to turn the question around and say why not study sociology um, There are several impediments why sociology is not very popular. Uh, The first is that it's not taught uh, in sufficient high schools. So a lot of students coming up in high school, they take psychology, they take economics, they take a political science, they mm-hmm. take civics, they take history, but they never take sociology. The second problem that we encounter is that people think of sociology like in the 1960s. We were associated with a lot of the uh, social uh, protest movements in the United States. So people think that we continue to do that. And and then the third reason is that we, a lot of people don't know the difference between sociology and social work. So a lot of people say, oh, sociology, social work? Mm-hmm. We are very different from that why should we study sociology well we provide students with a very good methodological foundation that is applicable to many professions mm-hmm. um, a, for example if you if you are in business and, and you want to start a new business or want to st- introduce a new product you will normally do something that is called market research most of the people who do market research are sociologists. Mm. We have the tools to study the market and to, uh, to say, this is, these are the risks that you assume by starting this business uh, enterprise right now. Uh, this is not something that is taught in business school. In business school you are taught accounting management investment and this and that personal this and that but but you very few people are taught to do research or, or the sophisticated research that is necessary to conduct uh, market research mm-hmm. we can do that so 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 sociology the first thing is that we we provide very very useful methodological and research skills that you can apply to multiple professions. Second, uh, we study a theory, social theory. And social theory allows you to interpret events and experiences Mm -hmm. in a different way. So it stimulates your creativity, okay? It stimulates your way of thinking, your way of perceiving, your way of analyzing. Mm -hmm. And that's actually very important. And then uh, one of the things that we do is that uh, we specialize on studying some social problems that regrettably are not going to go away anytime Mm -hmm. soon. For example, homelessness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we find a solution to the homeless problem? Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that we are, we are all concerned about. We sociologists uh, can apply some of our skills mm-hmm. to at least make some recommendations, to buy some viable recommendations about how to deal with this problem. Mm-hmm. So sociology, I think, should be very popular uh, here in this university you should know that we are a very popular major we have uh, over a hundred students in our program uh, we have a fairly large department uh, with faculty members we offer lots of courses mm-hmm. we have a lot of visibility in the university mm-hmm. I, I feel that we're doing really well here in santa clara i mm-hmm. really do
1: mm-hmm. yeah Our like if someone let's say they were uh a business student or an engineer and and they had gone through college and never studied sociology like what what (laughs) are they missing yeah like what are they what are they well uh, you mentioned the research methods and uh, i get that
0: but i i i'm glad that you that you talk about engineering so engineering i can make two points one of the roles of engineering is to resolve problems in society right Mm -hmm. they're problem solvers uh, we we study that in sociology we study how do you innovate how do you create mm-hmm. a solution how do you come up with a, a solution uh, to resolve social problems mm-hmm. uh, you know we this is something that we've been studying since at least, the beginning of the twentieth century, you okay. know, uh, some sociologists in France began to to look at this idea of diffusion, the diffusion mm-hmm. of knowledge, and how how you know we can through the diffusion of knowledge we can resolve social problems. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason. the The other reason is that we often engineers are all, always uh, very interested in creating something new, mm-hmm. but a lot of times. They don't measure the impact mm-hmm. of their creation. Let me let me give you an example. Okay, right now, uh, as you probably uh, you know, you probably uh, remember from the or uh, have seen in the news, we're putting a lot of time into well, creating a driverless car. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to ride a car where there is no driver. You know, somebody the drive the car will drive by itself. Think about what that means. What that means is that that technological innovation is going to displace a lot of people that ride, they, they drive Uber, Lyft, taxis, many other forms of transportation, mm-hmm. because they, they will no longer be needed. So then we sociologists ask the question, what are we going to do with those people? Mm-hmm. If the technology displaces a group of people, what do we do with them? Mm-hmm. That's the question that we ask. The engineers mm-hmm. come up with the technology. Mm-hmm. We ask the question, what are we going to do with the individuals that that your technology displays?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do we do with them? Mm-hmm. Are we gonna retrain them? If that's the case, then we need uh, more investment for capacity training mm-hmm. and for, for retraining? Are we also simply going to forget about them? Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they are driving a car is because perhaps they don't have all the marketable skills mm-hmm. that they can apply to in the labor market. So by definition, if, we, if they are displaced from driving a car, they may be unemployed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, is that something that we really want? hmm you know, We ask those kind of questions, and those are very, very difficult questions mm-hmm. that we ask, and we, we have research, and we spent a lot of time thinking about them. So I, I like to think that we can work together. With engineers, Mm -hmm. we can work together with people in the business school. We can work together with people in law school Mm -hmm. to actually do the research component that they're not equipped uh, to do. Mm -hmm. And so there's some complementarity there.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, there's there's a few questions that I like to ask every guest at the end of the conversation. So the the first one is: uh, Is there any favorite location that you've traveled to in the world?
0: (laughs) Well, I. uh, for many, many reasons, I always enjoy going to Spain.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, um, uh, as I said earlier in our conversation, when I left my cont- my home, my native country, Cuba, I lived in Spain. I spent four wonderful years there, in high school and so forth. Um, it so happened that when I went to graduate school, uh, my roommate was from Spain. We are still friends, he lives there. I have relatives in Spain, you know, I'm a first-generation Cuban. Mm-hmm. My my family comes from Northwest Spain. Uh, uh, in, 19, in 2017, I had a Fulbright, uh, mm-hmm. it was a Fulbright uh, a faculty, in the University of Valladolid in Spain. So the, I always have a, a reason to go back to Spain. Spain is a country that fascinates me for for personal reasons, for professional reasons. It's a, it's a country of tremendous diversity, very, very different. Uh, so you can go to one province or another and it's a completely different, even though they live nearby. Mm-hmm and uh and and that's that's a place that i my wife and i we always try to go back you know every time we have a chance we always we have already uh, a trip planned for this summer to mm-hmm. go back to spain you know so yeah cool yeah
1: if you could send a message to every person in the united states what would you want to say
0: I, I uh, that's very difficult there are so many things that I would like to say but I would generally would like to say that uh, in the United States like in many other countries we we're getting basically really busy with getting bombarded with information and I think it is very important that everyone takes a, a little bit of time to reflect on on our own life on our road in society today uh, what can we do to to make uh, our country better. Uh, I think the United States is a great country, but of course, like any other country, we can improve on few things. So I would say reflect on, on your own role in society, uh, reflect on, on your values, what is right, what is wrong, what you would like to change, if, if it can be changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that this process of reflection is something that uh, we are we are losing, because today we live in such a fast-paced uh, society. Mm-hmm. It's so complicated. Everything is, uh, you know, was due yesterday. Everything is, uh, you know, we have deadlines all the time and, you know, uh, working hours at a stretch beyond the regular seven mm-hmm. seven hours a, week, a day that we we have lost this idea of sitting back and reflecting on what's going on, you know, what. what how do we fit into our society today? How do we fit into the big picture? And I would invite everyone in the United States to, to make some time, uh, probably every week, to, to sit back and say, let me reflect on what happened this week. Let me reflect of what I'm doing. Let me reflect of how I can make my life better and perhaps help others. I think those are very, very good uh, things to do
1: yeah definitely and and the last question what does an ideal Saturday look like for you
0: oh wow uh to be honest with you an idea an idea saturday is uh for me it it's sort of you know, very, very routine. Uh, Get up in the morning, uh, have breakfast, uh, talk to my wife for a little bit, and then I go to the exercise exercise for about an hour. And then I come here to the office and I work until around two o'clock. go home, uh, you know, get ready. And then my wife and I, we usually go out and Mm -hmm. we go to see a movie or we uh, go see a function someplace. So since we are new to California because we would not... A native to the state sometimes we we just go sightseeing and we spend some time trying to get to know the state and mm-hmm. and then we get home around uh, 10 30 11 and you know trying to wind down for the next day but that's kind of my, what a regular saddle it looks for me yeah know.
1: awesome well thanks so much for doing this thank you thanks so much for here Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.